0: Greetings! Welcome back to Sick Flip. Um, I'm so glad to be back. I'm so glad to have you back here with me, and I'm very excited for this episode. So, this episode is dedicated to our Sapphic sisters. You know, all of our, all of our, our lesbian queens out there. Um, yeah, this episode is the first official-ish episode of our Pride series, we were going to actually be talking about, like, movies and stuff. Um, Our first episode was the introductory episode, so we just kind of went over what you can expect from the series going forward, the importance of representation, and a bunch of facts and tidbits and stuff like that. Um, Yeah, I think that's all I have to say, and I think we can actually start with our episode. So, like I said in the last episode, our entertainment news or what's going on in the industry um, for the series, it's not going to be current stuff. It's going to kind of be a look back at some various moments of queer film history. Um, and this is going to be dedicated to lesbian film history and stuff like that. I have a lot of facts. Uh, I kind of went ham and still felt like everything was important. So we're going to be covering a lot in this segment. I have it broken down into three categories, I guess. Um, First, we're going to be looking at various moments throughout the actual film history. And then we're going to be looking at some queer coding and stereotypes. And then lastly, we're going to end off with a bit of like tidbits. And little facts here and there um so without further ado let's get on to the film history part so our first lesbian themed film was Madchen in uniform I don't know it was a German film um it came out in 1931 and you know depending on who you talk to it might or might not be considered the first lesbian themed film a lot of movies um a lot of queer movies. It's all kind of speculation and allegations and stuff like that, especially during, you know, the beginning era, because a lot of it was not very explicitly queer, I guess you could say. So yeah, that one, I guess you could say was the first one to come out, but I think it was like quickly overshadowed by some others that came a few years later. So again, depending on who you talk to, it might not be the first. Um, around that time, though, around the world, actually, um, homosexuality was illegal at that time. And so that, plus, as we discussed last week, the Hayes Code led to a lot of queer coding of characters, plot lines, moments, and stuff like that. So during the Hayes Code post-war era... Um, a lot of lesbian-esque characters were kind of far and few in between, um, which, again, it makes sense because, especially during the Hays Code era, um, displays of homosexuality was also not allowed, so there was a lot, again, queer coding going on during then. Um, afterwards, there were more lesbian characters started to pop up, um, but because of the, I guess you could say, backtracking they had to do with, you know, either not showcasing lesbian characters at all or having to showcase them with queer-coded, um, I don't know what you would call that, overhanging? I don't know. <laughs> but because of The strict guidelines against the display of queer characters, um, a lot of lesbian representation had to catch up a bit. And so, you know, there were some here and there, but a majority of um, lesbian representation or the majority of lesbian characters, plot lines, and films were actually written and directed by men, which we will get to later some of the effects and problems that came from that um but yeah the 1980s it was kind of kind of an era where a lot of not only lesbian characters but a lot of lesbian actors and directors kind of started to make their voices and stories known um so there was kind of a resurgence there and there was definitely a huge shift in narrative during the AIDS crisis. Um, so kind of while that was going on, lesbian filmmaking, I guess, kind of sought to push for more family-friendly lesbian representation. Um, so that's what I have for film history facts going on to our queer coding slash stereotypes um, what did I call it? I don't know. Category? Section? I don't know. Um, but <laughs> so going back to not necessarily the Hays Code era, but like maybe more so 20s and early 1930s, um, lesbianism was coded a lot as women masquerading as men. So for example, in the 1930 film, Morocco, There is a scene where a woman kisses another woman, but um, one of the women is dressed up as a man in a tuxedo. So, you know, it was was kind of more clearly, I guess, a lesbian moment, but under the guise of one of the women being or portraying a man. Um, So... Yeah, and that was kind of present during, again, the 20s and 30s. Um, moving, I guess, on a little bit, um, the female prison film Ladies They Talk About, which came out in 1933, so like a year before the Hayes Code era, um, it actually, it was a, like I said, a film set in a female prison And that film inspired a lot of studios to set stories and other films in jails and schools and whatnot um, as a way of focusing on what we would probably categorize as like butch or lipstick lesbians. Um, So that's where a lot of you see that kind of representation or showcasing of those types of characters, um, but also where maybe that trope kind of comes from. And then the film Bloods and Roses, which came out in 1960. So again, during the Hays Code era um, by Roger Vadim. I don't know. Um, That actually kind of created or brought on the sapphic vampire and witches trope, which I feel like you do see a lot going forward. And then lastly, um, around again that time, or especially during like the 20s and 30s, um, a lot of studios also began to present sapphic characters as neurotic victims um, that would eventually meet some sort of unhappy ending. Um, I think a film that you could probably trace back to even though like this is kind of a speculation from what I've seen of the film the film The Seventh Victim um it is about essentially a woman who is a part of or she joins I forget what happens she is forced into she somehow gets like in association with a satanic cult and it's all kind of a metaphor for lesbianism essentially and I think what even happens at the end is like she commits suicide I think um after being brought into it so as you can see a lot of that kind of trope or that I guess not necessarily a stereotype but yeah that trope of kind of like a lot of lesbian or queer characters being you know, deranged or crazy, and then inevitably meeting, like, a disastrous end. You could say that it came out of, you know, that time where a lot of studios were pushing to present that narrative. So that's what I have for queer coding and stereotypes, and then lastly, I'm actually flying through this pretty fast, I feel like, I don't know, but lastly, um, I have some fun tidbits. And the one that I guess we're going to be focusing on today is the 1968 film by Robert Aldrich. So 1968, it came, it's in the year, I guess you could say, of um, the end of the Haze Code era. I'm not sure if it, you know, came right afterwards, if it's like a direct reaction to coming out of the Haze Code era or what I feel like it probably is, given the context. But the film, The Killing of Sister George, um, there is a, an infamous sex scene between actresses Susanna York and Carol Brown, and that infamous sex scene it was actually deemed so explicit that it was the first film to get the X rating by the MPAA, um, and it was banned from like most theaters in a lot of various cities. And a Boston theater owner actually played it despite it being banned, and he- they were jailed for six months and fined a thousand dollars for showing it. So yeah, that is all that I have for um our what did I call it queer cinema history facts related to. Our lesbian episode. So, yes, very exciting. Um, and that's all I have for this segment. We're going to get into the context of this episode. So, I have a few films that I want to talk about um, that I feel like either do a really good job of discussing various um, themes when it comes to not only lesbianism or the lesbian community, but also the queer community overall. And I have one film that I want to talk about because I think that it is not very positive. Like I said last episode, I originally wanted to only talk about films that I thought were good forms of representation or that I thought were good lesbian films. Um, But I realized that sometimes negative or bad representation, um, it still aids in the forward movement of queer film, I guess you could say. Um, So we're going to be talking about one that I do not particularly like. And yeah, but I want to start off by talking about One of my favorite, if not probably my favorite, like lesbian film, um, I definitely would consider it a classic, and that is The Watermelon Woman. We love The Watermelon Woman, we stand The Watermelon Woman. So, if you do not know what The Watermelon Woman is, um, it is a film that came out. Oh gosh, when did it come out? like the 1990s, I think. So yeah, it came out in like 1996, 1997. Um, and it is by Cheryl Dunn. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it's kind of like a mockumentary or as people kind of now describe it, um, a Dunumentary, which is kind of like a mockumentary, but in a style that Cheryl Dunn has been doing um, and has kind of cultivated over filmography i guess you could say but the watermelon woman is a mockumentary about the main character the protagonist cheryl um and she decides to make a documentary about her trying to find more about this woman in this like 1920s film um She plays, I forget what she plays, I think it's almost like a mammy figure in the film, and she is credited as the watermelon woman. And so she, Cheryl, becomes very fond of her character and wants to learn more about her character and the actress that plays her. And through this kind of fake archival process, she finds out that the woman is also a lesbian. So... It brings up a lot of interesting things um, regarding history, queer history, but also archiving queer history. Um, It, I don't know where to begin. I guess you could say like the first thing is, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but the film is fictional it is um there are a lot i think of there's a lot of elements that i think to a person first watching it you think that it is like true and there are moments where you're like is this really like this feels like a movie but this also feels like a documentary which again again which is why i think um it got the title that it has from cheryl dunn um but Ultimately, the watermelon woman and the whole process of finding out who she is is fictional, and that brings up um, the conversation about "quote unquote" queering history. In the process of not only finding, you know, queer icons from history, but also literally queering history making fictionalized queer characters out of possibly real historic events, um, which I think is very interesting. And it does a really good job of kind of like showing ways in which it is hard to find and dig up information um, about people, especially people that you may later find out to be queer. But it also talks or it brings up a lot of interesting points about the whole process of like archival um, research, I guess, especially when it comes to, again, queer people. But there's also an interesting point where Cheryl, she meets this woman. Um, she also works at a, like, essentially like a blockbuster, I guess you could say, and like a DVD rental place. Um, and she meets this woman at her job and she begins to have a relationship with the woman. The woman is white and she kind of joins onto her project to find out more about the watermelon woman. But, Her her whiteness um, is able to give Cheryl a lot more access and information when it comes to researching. So she's able to help her out with getting connections to people to talk to. I think she helps her with being able to go into this... um, like lesbian library, essentially, where it's dedicated to preserving different artifacts um, relating to the history of like lesbian people, I guess you could say. And you know, the movie also brings upon the how race plays a factor in access because a lot of the progression of her of her film, but also the progression of her being able to find out more about the watermelon woman is kind of aided by her white girlfriend, you know? And it becomes, I guess, so apparent or maybe even, maybe even pervasive, I guess you could say, um, that it starts to become her project as well, you know? And so it starts off as like Cheryl's project her film to find out more about this woman. She meets this white woman, they form a relationship. She's like, hey, I can help you in this regard and in this regard to find out more about, um, you know, this woman. I can get you interviews and I can get you into this space. And then down the line, she's accompanying her to interviews. She's helping her find this and that. And then later it becomes our film you know? And so it's like, it's great that she's helping her, but it kind of brings on the conversation of, or kind of, it kind of shows the ways in which, um, whiteness also, I don't know how you could say it. Like if, it, if, it, it it facilitates, maybe not facilitates it. Whiteness gives you know, people certain access to spaces that otherwise cannot be accessed, um, but it also is pervasive enough to where it kind of takes on things that are not theirs. You know, and so it's like whether or not she meant to do it, her her inherent whiteness and you know all of the movements ideology mental behaviors, I guess, um, and thought processes that come along with it start to show up um, in various parts of the film and in the relationship to the point where Cheryl no longer has the complete access or the complete autonomy over her own film. You know, does that make sense? Um, And so I think it it does that in a very interesting way That you might not see at first, or it might not seem as a big deal, but I think when you start to have a greater conversation about, like I said, access to um, private or special spaces, maybe you could say, um, how pervasive whiteness is in that regard. So, I thought that was interesting and I think the most interesting thing about the film and it blew my mind I guess you could say when I learned about it and kind of like thought about it later but it is the ethics of outing someone who has already passed away and so like I said the it the film revolves around Um, Cheryl finding out more about the Watermelon Woman. Obviously, this takes place in the 90s, and the Watermelon Woman was set in the 20s, and so the woman um, has passed away. And in the process of just finding out who she was and more about her, Cheryl finds out that she is also a lesbian. And so she begins to, you know, really dig into that um, because she's like, oh my gosh, this woman in the, you know, 20s was living this amazing, you know, sapphic life off screen, but she was also very prominent in the film industry. And, you know, that's what, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and so she starts digging more into it. And she, I think she tries to talk to one of um, the watermelon woman's Like past lovers. She was, I think the woman was like a director and they met on the set of one of their movies. I don't know if it was necessarily the film that Cheryl keeps referring back to or if it was another film, but I think they met on that set and they started to kind of have their own private relationship. And she, you know, finds a bunch of pictures of them together and stuff like that. And you know, she starts prying more into it. And I think eventually she she interviews, I forget who it is. Either she interviews like a really close friend or she interviews like a family member, possibly her mother. I don't know. But, you know, she interviews somebody close to close to the watermelon woman and she asks about her, you know, intimate relationship with the director. And the person is kind of like, like that's one, that's none of your business, but two, um, she wasn't, she wasn't out in her lifetime. And I don't think that it is appropriate for you to be creating an entire movie or creating an entire film, um, that inevitably is going to out her. You don't know if that's what she wanted. You don't know if that's what she, you know, intended for her life or her image um, you know, you don't know if she wants to be out for the world now. And so, you know, it kind of brings up the, the idea or the conversation of like, there are a lot of queer figures in history that, you know, at the time of their lifetime, I guess you could say, um, weren't out. But after their death, stories or documents or pictures or whatever are coming out to show that they are actually queer but it's kind of it asks kind of the question of like but you know is that necessarily ethical is it really ethical to out somebody after they have passed away you know it 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 kind of I don't know how to word this um it kind of like I don't want to say that it equates it to like outing somebody that didn't ask you to out them while they're alive, but it's kind of like, you know, do you think it is ethical to out somebody when they didn't ask you to, you know, do you think it's okay to out them if they weren't ready? You know and and how do you know that this person ever wanted to be out to anybody you know not even in their lifetime but like period how do you know that so-and-so um wanted the world to know that they were actually gay or they were actually a lesbian um you know, because they didn't they didn't give you that right to dig up that information and to spread that information, you know? And it's like, it kind of goes to question, like, it is important to know key figures or key queer figures in history because it, one, goes to show that queer people didn't just pop up out of nowhere, you know, like they didn't just pop up in the 60s <laughs> and have just been recruiting people ever since then. You know, it's great to show that queer people have been present in, in humanity, I guess you could say, um, since humanity was humanity. But it's also like, but that consent, I guess you could say, is not there. The consent is not there because they're not alive to give consent. And so it's like as much as it is important to document those characters or not those characters, to document those people um, and to show people like, hey, at this time there were queer people. This person was queer. This person was queer. This person was queer um, through these various documents and stuff like that. It's also like you have to question how ethical is it to do that work? After they have passed away, because, like I said, they're they're not here to give us that that consent, you know, and it made I don't like it. Just it it kind of blew me away um, because I feel like that is something that we just do not think about. I think that people once someone has died we kind of think that we have every right to completely access them and, like, who they are and what they did and whatnot. Um, And this film kind of goes to to question the ethics of that, and it kind of makes you think, like, you know, in this regard, like, is it necessarily right or wrong? Um, So I thought that that was really interesting that the film – kind of brings up that conversation and I feel like it's not one that is had often um, but I think definitely after you watch the movie it makes you it makes you stop and think of like okay like where do I personally stand on that matter do I necessarily think that's right or do I think that it's wrong do I feel like the dead should have some autonomy in the way that their image is presented um or do I think that, you know, once you have died, you've your life is kind of available to whoever can access it, you know? I think it's an interesting conversation to have, but I think it's also necessary when you talk about, like, queer history and um, queer history research and archival and stuff like that. Um, but it's also a really good film. (laughs) I guess you could say, uh, I just really like it. I like questions aside, themes aside, motifs aside. I think it's just a really fun film to watch. And it's a great film that, again, it looks at what it's kind of, it kind of, kind of, but it kind of looks at, you know, like lesbianism um, as it intersects with race and also class and stuff like that. Um, It's also starred, written, directed heavily by um, lesbian, black lesbian women or black lesbian woman, um, because Cheryl Dunn is a black lesbian woman. Um, And so, yeah, like I said, I think it's, I, I consider it to be like a classic when it comes to queer films, but especially when it comes to lesbian films. Um, and it might well be one of my favorite in the list that we're talking about. I never have to say that anything is my favorite, but I always have to say that everything's my favorite, you know? So yeah, if you haven't seen, um, The Watermelon Woman, I know that it's on the Criterion channel. I know that. I think it, I don't know if it's anywhere else where you can stream it. Um, It might be on Amazon for free with the subscription. If not, you can rent it. But if you have the Criterion channel, you can definitely watch it on there. And they also have um, other works by her, which I also recommend. Uh, anything by Cheryl? Then I, I guess I would recommend. So, yeah. Moving on. What do I want to do first? I think we're also going to keep 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 in the in the documentary mockumentary archival Black lesbian theme here, um, and we're going to talk about a film that I actually recently came across. Came across, yeah um, called The Shakedown. The Shakedown, it came out a few years ago, actually, like 2018, I think, and it focuses on a black lesbian strip club in, um, LA that took place or that was very prominent in the late 1990s, early 2000s, yes, and it kind of focuses on black lesbian culture in general, I guess, but also during or especially in, you know, the LA kind of California scene. Um, It is very raw. It is very raunchy and it is very sexual. But I think that nature of it makes it really beautiful because it is a very like unflinching celebration, but also like showcasing of um, sexuality and sexual liberation, especially for black women, especially for black lesbian women. Um, I think both groups throughout history and especially on film have been kind of denied the autonomy of sexuality and sexual liberation. And so it's really nice to see black women, um, express themselves freely and to be given the space to behave sexually and to behave, I guess, um, in whatever way that they, they choose. Honestly, and truly, it's great to see black women reclaim that amount of, um, personal autonomy over their bodies, but also their sexual orientation, but also their sexual expression, I guess you could say, um, and yeah, it was also very interesting to watch because it reminded me so much of Paris is Burning, um, and they actually make a lot of references not to the documentary but to the ballroom scene. And so there is one particular interview where um, a woman is like, "I like to, I like to dress in drag, you know," and I take direct, um, inspiration from the ballroom era, from drag queens, you know, and it's interesting because it kind of shows, it shows how that era and the history of it permeates, I guess you could say, through, um, the queer community and you see the after effects of that era and the aesthetics of the era or the performance of the era um, in kind of less dated times, I guess you could say, because I feel like, I don't know, I personally feel like the early 2000s happened like five years ago. And so I see it as something that is so present. And I feel like when you watch like Paris is Burning or you think of the ballroom era, um, you... I feel like a lot of people see it as something that happened, not necessarily, like, such a long time ago, but is something of definitely of the past. And to see, like, to find and to learn that it its impacts are still being felt and, like, showcased kind of, like, today, I guess you could say, um, was very interesting. And also because I feel like... Um, you, again, you associate it with something that happens, obviously, in the queer community, because a lot of people, um, performed in, you know, ballroom, um, I don't know what you would call them, competitions, I guess you could say, um, but I think it is most heavily associated with trans women, and so to see, lesbian women take on a lot of that inspiration and to see them incorporate it into their performances, I feel like it's also interesting because lesbian women are, are a lot of times taken out of a lot of narratives and a lot of, I feel like queer movements. Um, you know, it's usually co-opted by gay men a lot of times. And so, I feel like women in general but especially lesbian women can often be erased. And so I think that it's also interesting to see how their culture is still very I don't know how would you I don't know how you could describe it. Like to see that they were definitely not necessarily present during it all, like of course, but I guess that's not necessarily what I'm trying to say, but to know that it is still heavily a part of their community and culture, I guess you could say. So I thought that that was very interesting. Um, And yeah, I think that it is just, like honestly and truly what I really love most about it is that it is such a positive display of Autonomy and sexual liberation, honestly and truly. um, The various women that they interview and showcase, you know, they are never like, oh, you know, that was a very dark time in my life or like, "I'm I'm only doing this because this and this or like, I've been forced into, you know, this kind of lifestyle. They're all like, no, like I got drawn into this and found it to be really interesting. Um, And this is something that I genuinely love to do. This is something that I am excited for. And this is such a positive, you know, aspect of my life. Um, And it's really interesting. I feel like and refreshing to see, because again, I feel like so much of queer representation um, and a lot of jobs and occupations, I guess you could say, Um, for a lot of queer people, it usually seems like they're only doing it because they have to, you know? And a lot of times you don't see them fulfilling their full or expressing their full autonomy. There is some sort of, I feel like, personal restriction that makes them go into... X, Y, and Z lifestyle because they are fighting for survival, you know? And so to see this as a safe space for Black lesbian women, but also as a space where they can feel completely free and, you know, they they can do whatever they want. Um, it's very empowering, but also very inspirational, I guess you could say, um, to watch and... It's a crazy ride, but it's a fun ride, you know? And I think when the movie ends, you're just, it, 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 it left me feeling just like really good and really empowered, you know, as kind of like a woman in general. Um, but yeah, I really like the movie. Like I said, it's on the Criterion channel. I just, I like literally came across it, I don't even know how, as I was perusing and I thought it was pretty interesting. Um. And after having watched it, I think that it is a very important piece of text, I guess you could say, Um, to kind of analyze, I guess, the various facets of, like, lesbian culture, lesbian film. So, yeah. Hmm... Do I want to talk about the film I don't like next? I think I will. <clears throat> so I guess going off of um, positive, going off of positive representation um, or films I feel like do a really good job of showcasing and creating conversation and space for, for lesbians um i want to talk about a film that i feel like miss the mark you know a film that i think um a lot of people would deem as a staple in lesbian cinema that i would argue is not um yeah and that is blue is the warmest color So, I watched this film a while back. Um, I think, again, when you're talking about films about centering around lesbians, this is probably the first one to come up, and I think it is very sensationalized for a lot of reasons. But I think that also the reason why it is very sensationalized is one of my biggest problems with it. Um, And I guess, again, my biggest thing is that it is very pornographic, I would say. So Blue is the Warmest Color. It is about a girl in high school. She meets this other girl and it essentially sparks her like first lesbian relationship. They date for a few years and they kind of then have like an on and off relationship. They come back together, try things out again. They end up breaking up, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, it seems very whatever on the surface but a major part of this film is that there are various extended and explicit sex scenes throughout the film. Um, I think the biggest problem I have with the film, especially pertaining to the sex scenes, is that ultimately it was directed by a man. Wait wait, wait a second, though. You know, you might be asking, but can't men create good slash decent films about lesbians? Yes. And I will refer to quickly um, the film The Handmaiden. The Handmaiden was directed by a man And it is very um, highly acclaimed. And I think that that is a good movie as well. But I think the difference between that movie, that is a lesbian film featuring lesbian sex scenes directed by a man, and Blue is the Warmest Color, is that the conditions in which those scenes were filmed and I think the gays that are attached to those films... Um, I think are vastly different. So there was a lot of controversy with Blue is the Warmest Color regarding the sex scenes because there were various allegations of abusive behavior on set. Um, There were like really long hours regarding those scenes, kind of ill treatment of both the actresses involved, but also of crew members Um, and a kind of perverse way of filming those scenes um, was brought up, you know? And I guess contrasted to The Handmaiden was the information that came out about a lot of the filming of those particular sex scenes was that I think they said, like, it was a lot, all of the The male crew members were asked to leave set, and the director himself, I think they said, was not physically present on set. He was, he directed using, like, automatic camera gear, um, and kind of just tried his best to create a safe environment for the women. They were never, I think they said it was never, they were never asked to, like, undress on set or whatever, um. And so it kind of just created a, a safe space for the women to act out these scenes. And I think, one, the treatment is especially important. But I think in the way that these films are presented is also important as well. Because I feel like blue is the warmest color, especially with the way that the sex scenes are filmed, edited, and presented to the audience. I think they especially cater to the male gaze. And I think when it comes to showcasing um, lesbians, I guess in general, on film, the male gaze is particularly oppressive and harmful to the representation and the preservation of the lesbian image Um, because we are not trying to appeal to men at any point, you know, we're not, this is not a story pertaining to regarding or involving men at all. So to kind of have that presence there, I think it automatically creates, you know, this harmful space or this oppressive space because it kind of infringes again on their, on their autonomy and on their ability to express themselves fully and who they are. Um, So, yeah. And, like, I think the film, it ends up becoming a movie that men watch because it is catered to them. And so everything that these women do together that is inherently sexual it is never for the characters, but is also never for women, especially lesbian women. Um, and so it just kind of automatically becomes a film for men. And again, it's, it strips the film of its audience and it's of its personal autonomy. It's also extremely long, unnecessarily long, and there are moments in the film that I particularly do not like. I also do not like the main character. I think she was very annoying. I hate the way she ate food. Oh my gosh, it was disgusting. Like it made me sick, honestly and truly. And and that's another thing because I read about the different themes and motifs in the film and apparently food they try to make food another connection to, like, sexuality and stuff like that. So it's like the way that she's eating food is supposed to be, like, inherently sexual. And, like, why? Why is eating, why, why is eating food sexual? You know? And it's like, again, I feel like that is only a thing that they would try and do to appease the male gaze. Because anybody besides men would probably find that to be disgusting. Because it is disgusting. The way that she eats pasta makes me want to throw up. Okay? When she cries, oh my gosh. When she, I don't want to talk about it. Her crying is the nastiest thing I've ever seen. I understand that like with acting, you really got to, you really got to, fulfill every emotion and so I know with a lot of actors when they cry they cry and they got you know they got the tears and the snot everywhere you know I understand it's gross but I understand but like her crying her snot her tears it was just gross like wipe your nose at least once wipe your nose please please for us, for me at least, you know, it was so gross. Um, and it was yeah, it was unnecessarily long. You didn't need it didn't need to be three hours, especially with oh my gosh, especially with it being catered towards men. Men don't have that attention span. Who did you think who do you, who do you think was getting to the end of that movie, sir? Men. <laughs> Men not watching a three-hour long movie of women get back together. Especially when most of the sex happens in like the first 20 minutes. But whatever, whatever. Um, so yeah, I I think that discussing that film is important. But I do think that that film is particularly harmful to the overall representation of lesbian slash queer women. I do. Again, I think it perpetuates the male gaze, and I think that it kind of it kind of initially came from a wrong place. You know, I think that again, what happens in in production, it ultimately showcases on screen. And in the process, it again it, it doesn't do lesbian representation justice. Um, but yeah, and again, it's not necessarily me saying that men cannot create meaningful, important. N- no, I won't say necessary. But, you know, men can't create meaningful slash possibly important lesbian films. But I think in this case, it shows the dangers of men occupying space that is inevitably not their space to occupy, if that makes sense, you know? So, yeah, moving on from that film, we're going to go back to some positives, um, I have to talk about, I have to, I literally have to, I have to talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I have to do it, kids. So, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, oh my gosh. I just want to say first and foremost, that film is one of the most beautiful films you will ever watch in your entire life. It was shot on 4K, oh my gosh, and seeing it in theaters, it's different. It hits different, you know? You can watch it, you can, you can have a great time. You can have an absolutely fantastic time watching it on your phone, on your iPad, on your TV. But I will say, I will be that person to say that watching it in theaters is a different experience. It's a different experience. And I'm not going to say it makes all the difference. But like I said, it is a different experience. And it just makes it like 20 times more beautiful. So yeah, it is a gorgeous film. Gorgeous um, but I think it is also important for other reasons. So, like really all of the other films in that we're talking about today, mine is, again, Blue is the Warmest Color and The Handmaiden for the little part that we talked about, um, they're all directed by lesbian or queer women. And I think this film... It, I mean, all of them do, but I guess, you know, they all got to touch upon different things. So I think this film um, particularly does a great job of showing the importance of queer lesbian women creating films for and about queer lesbian women, you know, it, again, it, it shifts it shifts narratives from like bluest, warmest color that looks at a lesbian relationship from the male gaze, and it shifts it completely to look at a lesbian relationship from the female gaze. Um, and you see that. <laughs> like, I. You, be, you, be... you would think that it was. You know, you would you would think that it would be better, and you're absolutely right. Um, it there's just something about it. You know, it it comes it comes from such a place of like love and care that every character that is brought on screen is so well thought out and is so well articulated um it's just amazing, you know, and it it won I think it won a I forget what it's called it won like an award at the cannes Film Festival for its manuscript or its its screenplay and like. When I tell you this movie, it is one of the most beautiful films you'll ever watch. And it is one of the most, like, well-written films you will ever watch. Um, Because it's like, there is never a low point in the film. There There is never a moment. There is never a conversation. There is never a sentence that is forgettable, that is unimportant or that doesn't do its characters, its moment and the film justice. It is so well like it is so meticulously crafted um, and it shows it shows like it just shows, you know <laughs> it just it just shows um but yeah, it's like again and it goes back to show the importance of creating of a FUBU of creating, you know, media for, for its audience by its audience, for its demographic, by its demographic. Um, because it's like, you're never going to get that level of care, understanding and attention by somebody outside of this community, you know? And it, is a perfect example of that because it is so well-written. It is so particular in the things that it wants to say and the messages it wants to um, bring across, bring forth. I don't know, bring forward, whatever. Um, but yeah, it just, it just overall, it shows how much um, the director cared about the story and how important it was to showcase the story. It also is a period piece. I forgot. I think I forgot to mention talk about it. Uh, so it is about a woman who is about to get married um, and kind of like a cultural staple of like what 18th century France, I guess you could say, um, is Somebody paints a picture of her and I think it is like the sending off gift um, for when she gets married slash to her like husband to be. So this woman is about to get married. She's about to, you know, be in this arranged marriage and she doesn't want to get married. So she refuses to get her portrait painted or her portrait taken. And so her mother hires this female painter to paint a portrait of her Um, But she's like, like, she will refuse to sit to get painted. So you have to do all of this in private. And so the woman starts out by, you know, spending time with her, acting as if she is kind of like a companion, getting to know her and stuff like that. And then whenever they're not together, she has to paint her from memory. And so, you know, first it starts as that. And then they start to form, a, you know, a really good bond and they start to fall in love with each other. Um, you know, but again, ultimately, they kind of can't because she is supposed to get married. Um, and it, like I said, it, it takes place in the like 18th century or whatever. Um, but I think, again, It being a period piece, it is also important because it kind of goes back to what we talked about with the watermelon woman when it comes to um, queering history. You know, and I think it is a great way of showing how queer lesbian women were present during, you know, the 18th century um, in a way that might do justice to people that weren't out, you know? So I'm not necessarily going to say that that is the way that we should present queer history. Um, but I think that it might be a great example of a solution to trying to pinpoint queer people within history. You know, obviously it's not factual. Um, so you, People can say, well, you know, it's, it's just a movie. That's not actually what happened. But it's like, this is such a realistic portrayal of what happened during that time. This is such a great way to show that, you know, these people, these women existed during that time. And so I think, again, the importance of it being a period piece is because it, again, it shows other ways that queer people were present, other ways that they had informed relationships um during that time despite everything that's going on you know or despite what history likes to tell us people like to tell us about history um so I think that that's necessarily important as well and I guess my last thing is something I wrote about in my little review that I did on my website that nobody watched but that's okay because we'll be talking about it you know here um but I talked about how it does a really good job. It, it's a great example, I guess, of like, what did I say? Like a meditation on feeling and like yearning. Um, like it is, it is such a beautiful story of two women falling in love and creating this beautiful connection. But again, it is such a great meditation on those feelings, the feelings of falling in love, but also... Um, caring and attention and how that relates to loving someone or something, Um, kind of in the same way of like Lady Bird, where she's like, maybe that's what love is, you know, paying attention to something. And I think, again, it shows in this film, not only through the interactions of the characters, but also in the presentation of the film, like I said, with its attention to detail in its directing, cinematography, um, but also in its writing. You know, the way that the director pays attention to each character and the way that it showcases each character um, and their personal feelings throughout the story, the way that they show feelings or express feelings is not explicit. It's not rudimentary, I guess you could say. You know, it's not like, I like you or I love you. Please don't go. It's in the subtle ways that they look at each other. It's in the way that they react to certain moments or the way they respond to certain events. You know, like there's a particular scene in the film where the two women are talking about the different facial expressions they they put on in different moments, you know, And so, I forget their names, but the painter is like, you know, when you, when you're confused or something, you bite your lip, and then you know she bites her lip, (laughs) and then it's like, and you know when you're, when you're intrigued, you, you move your eyebrows, (laughs) Um, and like she moves her eyebrows, Um, and it's like, and when you're embarrassed, you look away, you know, and then she looks away, and it's like. It's stuff like that where you learn more about the women, but you also um, learn a lot about forms of expression or feeling that is not always explicitly expressed. Even though she's like, you know, when you're feeling this way, you do that. But again, it's like you, you, you have that moment where they talk about their feelings and the way that they respond to certain things in certain ways. And and then you see them respond to certain things in certain ways with those same reactions. And again, it just shows how feeling, you know what I'm saying? It shows like, it just shows like a deeper, it shows, like feel like a deeper meaning or understanding of feeling and expression. And again, it goes to show that the film as a whole is much more than a story of a doomed relationship. You know, it is a story of all of the feelings that come with forming an, an intimate and important relationship like that, if that makes sense. You know? So yeah, I just I just love this movie. I love this movie. I think it is really good. It's on Hulu. I highly recommend you, like highly recommend you watch it. Highly recommend you watch it because I think that, again, it is such a beautiful film. um, But it's also, it's just really good. And it, it, it taps into feelings and moments and like energy that I feel like. It's just so, so complex, but also kind of like primitive, like so ingrained into our beings, but still so complex that uh, you you really cannot describe it, you know? And I feel like the ability to do that um, makes it so much better. So, yeah. So, yeah. Um, And the last film that I want to talk about, because I do think that is necessarily important, um, is Pariah. You know, if you thought that we were going to talk about lesbian films without talking about Pariah, I'm glad to inform you that that will not be the case. So Pariah, it came out a couple of years ago. I would like to say 2012-2012. I feel like again, that whole era, 2012 to 2015, 14 era. Um, and it is about a closeted black lesbian teen who, yeah, kind of like to, I guess that's really it. (laughs) It is a story about her coming to terms with like her identity, her sexuality, while also, um, having to be in the closet, I guess you can say. Um, And I think that it is important, one, because this is kind of the only film in these films that deal with coming out, the coming out story. Um, And I think, again, it's very important to talk about when it comes to the queer community because that is I I don't want to say it's a big part of their identity but that is something that is exclusive I guess to it it is an experience that is exclusive to the queer community you know so again coming out is usually a very big pivotal part of queer people's experience in the world because so many people feel as if it is what is expected and so in this case, I feel like it is important to talk about a story that deals with coming out um, because it is a big part of a lot of people's lives, you know? And so in this case, it, it's not really by her choice. It's not by her choice at all. Um, Pariah, she is out to her friend. Her friend is also a lesbian. I think her friend is like out in general, um, so she's out to her friend, but she's not out to her family. Um, she likes to dress dress masculine whenever she is out. So like whenever she's hanging out with her friend, whenever they go to, you know, lesbian slash queer bars and events, she likes to dress pretty masculine. Um, but to her family, she dresses very feminine, um, which is more so... Pushed upon her by her mother, which I think you know, you can sense in the film that her mother senses that her daughter is not straight, and so she pushes femininity on her as a way of um, reassuring herself that she is, I guess you could say, or as a way of kind of denying that she is um, lesbian. And so she, Pariah, then kind of has a very quick, fast relationship with um, a girl, like one of her peers. It was, I think, her mother's friend's daughter that, like, they met at church or something. Um, And they have a very short fling. And then after that, Pariah becomes very invested in her, but she is like, no, I'm not with that. Or like, no, I don't want to come out. You know, that wasn't really anything to me. Um, and eventually, you know, everyone's kind of like, you know, your daughter's gay. And her parents are like, no, she's not. And so eventually they have to address it. And it's some—it's a very explosive scene where she comes out. Her parents um, both kind of corner her, and her mother outs her to her father, like, officially, where she's like, you know, your daughter's gay. You know, your daughter's um, a lesbian. She likes girls. And the father's kind of like, no. And, you know, they kind of go at her. And, and it gets to the point where she's like, no, like, I am. Um, and honestly, they don't accept her. Um, but I don't remember if they ever do. I think her mother is still really sad by it. And I think it kind of ends with like her mother kind of sort of not speaking to her. I'm not quite sure. It's been a while since I've seen it. Um, but yeah, I think that it's, it's not like a very positive coming out scene. But I think, again, it is very realistic to what a lot of queer people face in their day-to-day lives. Um I think that it is important to show various types of coming out circumstances, both positive and negative, because again, I just think the more representation that you're putting forth, the better it is in the long run. Um, And because like these are people's actual experiences, you know, and it's not necessarily like it is a doomed Like, her life is doomed after the fact. Um, She finds a lot of solace in her life afterwards, and she kind of realizes that, you know, even if her family doesn't accept her, that she accepts herself and that she has come to terms with her own identity and sexuality. Um, And so she's able to move forth, you know, later on in the movie. But I think, again, showing that scene is important because... One, it is very prevalent in a lot of queer people's lives, um, and it is a very pivotal point in a lot of people's lives, but again, it is important to show the various, um, the various situations, I guess you could say, the various like coming out situations. Um, So yeah. And I think, again, it also kind of shows how it relates to religion and the the religious Black parent, um, especially because I think that is a big thing that a lot of Black queer people, especially Black lesbians, have to face is the fact that, like, oh, my parents are deeply religious, um... And for whatever reason, again, especially for the Black community, or the especially for religious Black people, but in the Black community um, as a whole, we have a very hard time accepting our queer Black community. And a lot of times, religion is weaponized against them in trying to oppress them and, like, invalidate their, their sexualities or their gender identities. And I think that this is a good way of showing how race and religion um, work towards the oppression of queer Black people, especially queer Black women, you know? It also does a really good job of showing performance and the idea of performance for survival um she i mean thank god it is not a story where her coming out results in murder or tragedy or exile or something like that but even though you know something tragic does not happen to her you still see how she performs um in certain ways, as a means of, like, staying in the closet, again, as a means of kind of survival, because she knows that her parents or her family slash community is not accepting of her or people like her, and in order to, you know, keep peace with her family, but in order to, you know, overall survive in her environment, she has to um, put on a performance. It's similar to, I don't want to say it, I don't want to say it, it's similar to Moonlight in the way that they, you know, she feels like she has to, she has to put on the exact opposite or Like she has to, how would I describe it? Like she has to take on the extreme of the opposite spectrum in order to disguise herself as a heteronormative black woman, you know? So like in the same way that Chiron, um, he put on the hyper-masculine slash toxic-masculine persona as a way of kind of one, escaping the trauma he dealt with in his youth, but also as a way to kind of distance himself from his sexuality. You know, so he felt like I can't, I, like, people do not accept me as a gay black man. And so, what I need to do in order to survive. And in order to maneuver through the world in the best way possible, I need to put on this persona. I need to be this extremely buff masculine drug dealer because you know that's how I'm that's how I'm going to get the best results. That's how I'm going to be able to live the life that I want to live without the repercussions of homophobia. And I think it's the same way for Pariah. Um, again, it's heavily pushed on by her mother, but she I guess you could say she goes along with it because she's like, if I dress this way and I act this way and I put on the persona of a hyper feminine um, woman or teen, no one will know that I am lesbian No one will out me that I am lesbian, um, but my family will also accept me and love me, you know? And so again, it brings up the idea or the concept of queer people performing straightness or heteronormativity, I guess, um, especially to the extreme as a means of survival in their environment, if that makes sense. Um, And I think that that's also very interesting because it is something that, again, is not brought up in these other films because these women do not have to, they either do not have to come out to anybody or their sexuality and their gender expression is not at all Like, it it still very much aligns with heteronormativity, you know? So I guess you could say, like, in um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the women might be lesbian and they might um, have a lesbian relationship and it might be closeted because, you know, they cannot actually get together during this time. But neither one of them dresses outside of the norm for women during that time, if that makes sense. So particularly for Pariah, you know, when she is most comfortable in her gender identity and her sexuality, she dresses more masculine. You know, she dresses more butch. But when she is in the closet, when she is trying to be undercover, she can't dress that way because then it will it will blow her cover you know it will it will show people that hey i'm not you know heteronormative straight woman or whatever you know i'm i'm a lesbian woman that likes to dress more masculine um and again it it just shows the concept of kind of like queer people using gender expression i guess you'd say maybe as like a performance for survival Um, and I guess lastly, I think it is particularly important to talk about when it comes to lesbian cinema, because again, unlike these other films, it focuses on queer youth, um, especially black queer youth, especially black queer women. So we've gotten a lot of films recently that focus on queer youth. Um, and I'm not going to say that this is like You know, I don't want to make any crazy claims. Like, this was the first to do it, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I think it was definitely ahead of its time, I would say. I think it definitely did a lot for the culture. Um, And I think its it's focus on queer youth, again, is important. Um, Going back to our introductory episode where... It's like showing that it it shows a lot of queer youth that, you know, might not have realized that they are lesbian or that they are, you know, trans or whatever. Um, And it shows them somebody who is that they can identify with and that they can, um, you know, it could possibly just help them understand themselves a lot better. But again, it also shows this person on screen that they can relate to, and it also shows a lot of older people, um, maybe like a look into the lives, mindsets, trials, and tribulations of queer youth, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think that's, like, that's all I have to say. Um, so, yeah, this was a very, this was a longer episode, but I think that everything, that we talked about is important. And I think that the various films that we talked about in this episode, they all do a good job to lend themselves to various aspects or concepts that I think are important to talk about when it comes to the experiences of queer people, but also queer representation on film. And again, I think most of these films do a really good job of bringing up, focusing, and talking about different um, aspects when it comes to queer media representation. Um, So yeah, that's all that I have for this episode. I don't remember if I said last week that I was going to be recommending stuff. I don't know. If I said I wasn't, I'm breaking it. Um, But I just wanted to, like, use the sick flick... um, of the week segment as a way of kind of recommending other things that we might not have talked about. Because even though I think that we cover a good deal of stuff in at least this episode, um, like I only talked about like five or six films, you know? So some other movies that I think are particularly good to watch as it pertains to lesbian representation in lesbian cinema Um, Like I said, The Handmaiden, I think it's on Prime or it's on Hulu, possibly both. Um, But that is a really good film. And then we also have Rafiki. I don't know where that is on. I would like to say Hulu, but also it might not be on anything. I don't know. You'll have to see. Um, That movie I heard was really good. I actually personally have not seen it, but I've heard really good things about it. Um, so that is a recommendation for you and I, how can I be recommending things that I haven't seen? I don't know, but I trust my, I trust, I trust that recommendation. I'll say that, you know? Um, so yeah. And then the last one is the Miseducation of Cameron Post. Um, I have no idea where you would watch this. Amazon, Hulu, Netflix. I'm not sure. I haven't kept up with where it is at, which is surprising for me but it is a really good movie, but those are the other recommendations I have for some lesbian centered film. I'm just really excited about this series. Um, I don't know how many times I can say that. Um, and I'm really happy with this episode slash series so far. Um, next week we'll be talking about some gay films. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. If you want to stay updated on episodes, but also get some more information slash tidbits slash behind the scenes content, possibly, um, of this podcast, I definitely recommend you follow us on Instagram at sigflick.pod. If you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe so that you can continue to watch this on YouTube. Um, and yeah, if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, or concerns regarding this podcast, but also this series, also let me know. And I think that's all I have to say. Hopefully you stayed throughout this episode. I know it's definitely longer, but I think that's fine, you know? So yeah, regardless, um... I look forward to seeing you next week and peace out, Scouts.